politics and above religion, a moral authority exists known globally as the ageless wisdom. It is the study of consciousness, the mystery of awareness, which cannot be measured, yet will not be denied. Stay tuned as we explore consciousness, the fundamental nature of reality. Welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School with Michael Banner. Good afternoon. Thanks for joining us for the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on 90.7. KPFK in Los Angeles, serving all of Southern California, in fact, from Santa Barbara to San Diego, from the ocean to the desert, and of course, streaming, live streaming on the internet at kpfk.org. We have a wonderful guest for you today, and we're going to talk about uh, yoga a topic we haven't addressed in, uh, well, well over a year, and yet a very important topic. And uh, I just want to take a couple of minutes at the top of the show to talk about the fun drive, the fact that we are in the May fun drive, and that uh, we really need your help and support so that we don't have to go to corporate underwriting or, God forbid, commercials. Can you imagine KPFK with commercials? You know, 16 minutes, 17 minutes, an hour, like other radio stations, that would be horrible. But even if we were like uh, NPR and had to go to corporate underwriting, there is the, uh, I was going to say subtle influence, sometimes not so subtle influence of these corporations. There are certain things we can't do or couldn't say or that we might have to tiptoe around. And you don't want that either from KPFK. So we need you to be part of the family. We want you to ante up a little bit, just $15 a month, $20 a month would be wonderful. But if you're uh, unemployed, you're a student, a senior on fixed income, you have the option of donating as little as $5 a month, and that adds up. So $5 a month is $60 a year. $10 a month, obviously, is a nice donation of 120 bucks, But I bet you wouldn't even miss $20 a month. And yeah, a lot of people make annual contributions. They dig deep, come up with $150 or $200. But I just think the sustainer circle is a much smarter way to go. You won't even miss it. How about contributing, donating a tax-deductible contribution to KPFK and its mission to remain commercial-free simply by calling our phone room at 818-985-5735, 985-KPFK in the 818 area code. Or I think better yet, easier, and uh, actually we get a bigger percentage of the contribution when you go to the website, kpfk.org slash donate that easy kpfk.org and uh, support kpfk look for sustainers circle check out the premiums that make you gifts too if you're so inclined but you could pass on that and then even a couple of more dollars goes to keep the lights on so i wanted to mention that i'll touch on it at the end of the show but you could do that right now and in two or three minutes, be back in the saddle and listen to our interview and our fine guests today. Thank you for that. 
Thank you for listening to KPFK. So let's talk about yoga. Again, it's been well over a year since we talked about the subject, and it's such an important uh, field in art and science, as I see it. It's about um, the union of mind and body. I think it's about understanding the self. And that's an area that may bring up some anxiety for you, the whole idea of, you know, who are you really? Beyond the voices in your head, beyond the personality that you've cobbled together, who are you really? What is your essence? And I think that's my understanding of yoga. Let's find out from a real expert. My guest is living in uh, Venice, California. She is an author. She is a somatic therapist. She's a yoga instructor and uh, perhaps most importantly, a social activist. And she has a nonprofit that she'll tell us about called Off the Mat. And uh, what's the rest of it? Off the Mat and what, Hala? And into the world. There you go. That ought to be easy to remember. Off the mat and into the world. Hala Corey is my guest today on KPFK. Hala, welcome to the radio. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. I'm so happy to be here. Well, thanks. Uh, I'm always curious about people who devote themselves to yoga. I mean, you're not just somebody that swings by a yoga class once in a while. Uh, it's a central part of your life. What's your initial interest going back? What attracted you to the field? Well, when I walked into my first yoga class, which was probably 25 years ago, maybe more, um, I hated it, quite frankly. <laughs> um, I couldn't tolerate the stillness. I couldn't tolerate the amount of presence I was being invited to have. I wasn't ready for it. Um, but I knew in my mind that there was something happening in that space that I needed. I didn't have words for it just yet. And this class happened at a gym, right? So I was at the gym in college on the Stairmaster, reading my textbook, listening to music, completely distracted, trying to burn off the, you know, box of cookies I'd just eaten or something like that. And the yoga was the opposite of that, at least that yoga class, because not all yoga classes are like that. That yoga class happened to be more contemplative slower, more about presence. And I ran out, but told myself, one day I got to try this yoga thing because there's something about it that's important, but I'm not ready for it yet. And I got back on my treadmill with my headphones, you know, so I could be distracted again. And I found my way back into yoga through a form of yoga that was more um, available to me at that time, uh, a more vigorous style where they played music and I could tolerate that, right? I could tolerate moving a lot and sweating. It was a little bit more of a fitness-oriented class, although it wasn't, you know, it was at a yoga studio, not at a fitness studio. And I would say that yoga practice helped to usher me into a quality of embodied presence that I had never experienced before. And, and that's what yoga is for me. You speak about having a problem tolerating the silence. It reminds me in, uh, in college, on a couple of different occasions, I went car camping for the purpose of fishing. This was in Michigan. I was born and raised in, in Michigan. And being out there alone, 
I thought I would really enjoy, but I found it somewhat tormenting to have to sit with these thoughts in my head. And then the jabbering of my mind was often interrupted by um, television and radio commercials. I was hearing these commercials repeating over and over in my mind. And it took a full two and a half or three days for it to begin to empty out. And uh, then I started going backpacking and that was really my yoga was that's how I learned to, you know, tolerate the silence. And then, of course, I once I became used to it and immersed in it, it was exquisite. I, I heard the birds in a new way. I heard the sound of my feet on the trail in a whole new way. I read something by a philosopher, I think it's Blaise Pascal, he said, uh, the source of all man's problems is his inability to sit alone with his thoughts in a quiet room. Why don't you comment a little more on that? What's going on in our heads that we find so uncomfortable? Oh, my gosh. Well, I think there's a lot going on, right? I think that there's parts of ourselves that we've been told we should be ashamed of or we should disconnect from. There are experiences that we have that maybe were traumatic or painful that we deny or disconnect from. There's our busy lives and the constant stimulation of our iPhones and our busy schedule and the 24-7 news cycle. I think that for most of us in especially modern cultures, our entire life is designed to keep us distracted. And to actually get stillness is a, is a very intense uphill battle. We have to fight for it. At least that's been my experience. Yeah, well, I think it's a common experience. Um, seems to me a lot of the, what those voices are saying is negative and self-loathing. A lot of uh, fear and doubt. A lot of... Uh, Anxiety about our inadequacy and what other people may think of us. A lot of judgment. Mm -hmm. And uh, it seems the more stressed and anxious we get, the more frenetic are the voices. Yeah, I, I, I often, I call those voices, she's, she's my drunk girl. I have this drunk girl. <laughs> and I say to people, you, you can't let her drive the car because she'll crash it. And you can't throw her out because she'll jump in front, right? You have to put her in the back seat, give her some tea and a blanket, and she will mumble to you all the things, right? I don't think the voices ever go away, but our relationship to the voices can change. How do we not let them steer the ship of our consciousness and of our reality? But we have to integrate them. We can't pretend they're not there. Yeah, sometimes I talk to that frightened part of myself like I might talk to a child after a bad nightmare and just sort of yeah. comforted and everything's going to be okay. Daddy's got you. You're safe. <laughs> you know, exactly. You, you, you can't get rid of it. It's always going to be there. So uh, mm -hmm. to uh, comfort it and make it feel safe, I think is the best we can do. Absolutely. So many people think of yoga merely as the poses, the asanas, the stretching, the exercises. And they say, yeah, I do yoga. And I said, well, how's your meditation? They go, what? And I said, well, the meditation part. Oh, we don't do that. We just do yoga. 
Um, would you <laughs> would you comment on that? Well, you know, there are eight limbs of yoga, right? There's many pathways in terms of the original philosophy of yoga to get to enlightenment. You can do it through physical practice. You can do it through meditative practice. You could do it through study. You could do it through service. Um, and I think here in the West, the physical postural practice is what folks associate with a yoga practice. Um, but if you go to India where it originates, there's many pathways towards that enlightenment. And, you know, I, I'll be honest, I don't sit and meditate too much. I, to me, movement is meditation. So as long as if I'm moving and breathing, that is a form of meditation. And I think that, I think there's many doorways in to the presence that is required for us to be integrated, whole and awake. I know people who meditate a lot who are not integrated, who are simply dissociating. <laughs> They're not really meditating. They're sitting down, leaving their bodies and having some fantastical experience that feels good. So for me, the body, an embodied practice can help us make sure we're truly integrated. This doesn't mean you have to be doing yoga poses. Meditation can be deeply embodied as long as we are practicing in a way that's grounded and not dissociative. So I think that we can get to this place of integrated embodiment in many ways. Yoga poses, embodied meditation, dance, art, music, ritual. There's many doorways into that experience. Well, I think that's a good point. And I'm sure there are people who meditate for the purpose of dissociation, um, getting out of themselves, going, escaping reality, so to speak. But doesn't the word ultimately mean union? The word means union. And when we look at the different traditions of yoga or even the different spiritual traditions in other philosophies, we've got the dualist and the non-dualist, right? So we've got the folks that say, we got to escape this body. It's disgusting, right? You read Patanjali, oftentimes he's talking about escape. Let's escape the body. You know, we can look at um, parts of Buddhism that's are, that are about leaving, right? Escaping the monastic traditions. I'm a lot more about the, you know, the, the tantric traditions, the, the, the traditions that say that our liberation happens in our mundane life, in community, in our bodies. The body is not disgusting, something that must be escaped. It must be, it's something that must be embraced and inhabited fully. So I do think that there are the philosophies of enlightenment that are about leaving. And I'm like, that sounds kind of nice, but who has the luxury to leave is traditionally men. <laughs> they could leave. <laughs> they could leave the families. They could leave community, meditate on a mountaintop somewhere. In my view, I think, what good are you to our society if you have to leave to be enlightened? Clearly, I have some opinions on that. What I'm interested in is, quote unquote, enlightenment. I don't use that word in the here and now in the messiness of what it means to be human and alive. Uh, an enlightenment that's about relationship. That's not about perfection. That's not about escape, but is rather about the beauty of the present moment. Well, I like that a lot. I think that's very well said. Um, and that brings us to 
your organization off the mat and out into the world, what's the point of being a spiritual seeker if you're escaping your, or attempting anyway, to escape your, we can say responsibility, I think of it as an opportunity to be of service to other people. And there's so much that needs to be done, and apparently we're here to do it, um, to redeem injustice and the cruelty uh, in the world. Sometimes it's just so intolerable that I understand people who want to look away or um, find ways to distract themselves or numb themselves from the harshness of the world. But social activism feels wonderful. I mean, whatever it is you're doing, it could be uh, licking envelopes or marching in a protest or participating in a, in a phone tree or I think just even doing affirmations and meditations to keep yourself uh, stabilized. I, I have a friend in the, the Venice, Santa Monica area that does an activist support circle to help people deal with their stresses that come from being socially active. So talk about your calling in that area, why you put this group together to get people up off the mats and get beyond the either or of the spiritual world or the physical world and put these things into practice. Yeah. You know, when we started the organization 15 years ago, uh, we found that a lot of our students were folks that were coming to yoga through mainstream yoga spaces. So yoga studios, you know, where you'd have to pay, you know, 10 to $20 a class. And a lot of them, were fairly affluent, fairly privileged in society. And some of them weren't taking their practice off the mat. They were just getting deeper and deeper into yoga and meditation and healthy eating and mantras, whatever they were doing. And they were never asking, what can I do in the world? Um, you know, I often say to my students, you know, your yoga is getting better if your relationships get better, not your poses, right? But people were getting stuck. I was one of those people. I was getting stuck in my narcissistic world of trying to heal my body, my own personal issues. Um, and there was a time where I had to break out of that. So some of our students were folks who were just getting stuck on the mat and their lives were such that they had the privilege to. They didn't have to confront social injustice. They didn't have to confront economic injustice. They were buffered by their privilege. They could create a bubble a blissful bubble of kale juice and yoga, right? That never had them confront injustice in the world. And their work, as we would invite them to do, would be to move towards the discomfort of confronting what's happening in the broader world outside their insulated community. And so we invited them to think about that and to think about what their responsibility is, especially if they live a comfortable life. Um, we also started to get the opposite, those activists that you talked about, the folks that spend their lives fighting injustice, who were targets of injustice, and they were losing their practice. They were becoming burnt out, bitter, disconnected. They were starting to become part of the problem. They needed to get back on their mats and out of the world a little bit, right? So it goes in both directions. How do we connect our practice to our purpose? So it's a balance. Yeah, absolutely. It's really a balance. I love the phrase. Sometimes I think I say it too often about being in the world, but not of it. 
And it's a fence we have to straddle. And we're the bridge, I think, to those two worlds. Absolutely. So we could be off balance as the spacey, spiritual, pseudo-holy person is not involved in the world and vice versa. Mm-hmm. So what does your organization do? How does it actually um, work in the world? Yeah, I mean, we're actually on a pause right now, but we've done several things. At the essence of what we do is what we call an embodied leadership training. We take people through intensive trainings using yoga, meditation, dance, voice, sound work to explore themselves. A, so it starts with self-awareness. Who am I? What has shaped me? What in my identity impacts what I can and can't see in the world. So we start with the inner, then we move towards the outer. How am I communicating with other people? What are my relationships like? What is my purpose? When I understand things like systemic oppression and racism and all the isms and the issues that impact the world, what is my particular role in collective liberation? So we take people on a journey from the inside out, connecting the personal to the collective. And that's really the essence of what we did. We ended up growing and bringing in incredible faculty members who offered their own trainings on specific parts of social justice activism and embodied leadership. But essentially, we are training folks who want to go out into the world and serve to do so in a really responsible and ethical and and effective way. Maybe it's uh, my generation. No, it's not just my generation. For me, it was generational. I've just always felt that my first priority was to develop my relationships with people. Um, To be of service is sort of a high-minded kind of a phrase. I'm not comfortable with that, but that's really what it is, to help people, to work together. You get so much enjoyment and and benefit from that. Few things are as rewarding. And, you know, it's you don't have to solve every problem of the world. It could just be a little bit of kindness Mm -hmm. that's expressed. Maybe in the way you drive on the freeway, you can... You can uh, make a difference in the world that way. But the daily life of uh, earning and spending and producing and consuming, um, trying to make myself happy on that side of the equation has never really seemed to be a high priority for me. Whereas I think a lot of people, I hope I don't sound too judgmental, but I think a lot of us, have our priorities turned around. It's more about the I, me, mine. What can I get out of this world? Earning and spending and owning and acquiring and making an impression on other people. And then, oh yeah, I do know my conscience tells me I do have some responsibility here to contribute to the world. I, I'm not sure. Uh, well, let me just ask you how how you feel about that. And I guess it's just the advertising and the social conventions of the way we're talked to by media mm-hmm. that puts our identity as a, as a consumer mm-hmm. ahead of everything else. Absolutely. Um, I think 100% that 
there was a very deliberate campaign to turn us from citizens to consumers. Um, there's actually an excellent documentary called Century of the Self that talked about how marketing companies and the United States government brought in Freud's nephew after World War II to help convince people they needed to buy more stuff to feel good because we had all these big factories. They weren't manufacturing things for the war anymore. They were manufacturing stuff. And it was a very deliberate campaign. And they brought in psychologists to teach marketers, how do we convince people that if they buy something, they're going to feel good. And guess what? It worked. Because I think most people, to your point, see themselves as consumers. What can we consume to be happy? And we're only valuable if we are also productive. If we're working really hard, burnt out, we are no longer relational beings. We are no longer citizens of the world caring for one another. And I think that the biggest disease that we have is this disconnection from our interdependence. And that brings us back to yoga, right? Yoga is about remembering that we are all deeply connected. And our suffering comes from this myth that we are told that we are separate from one another. And I think that if we can remember that we are connected, we can go back to getting our priorities right, but they are flipped upside down right now. And I think that's the root of our pain. I'm glad you brought up the whole idea of separation, the illusion of separation. Let's talk about that more after a short break. You're listening to The Ageless Wisdom on KPFK. My guest today is Hala Curry. She's an author, a yoga teacher, and obviously social activist, as we've been discussing. And we'll have more right after this. Stay with us. This is KPFK. Hi, I'm Nita Valens, and this is a Fun Drive moment. I'm here to remind you that our listeners are the most reliable source of income for KPFK. Yes, that's you, making up over 90% of our annual budget. With your gift right now, you can move us closer to our goals and help us shorten on-air fundraising. Please call 818-985-5735 or pledge online at kpfk.org. Thank you. It's the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on KPFK. My name is Michael Benner. We're here every Tuesday at 1 in the afternoon. We live stream on the internet at kpfk.org. This show's also podcast and even posted to YouTube. We're talking about yoga today. We're talking about spirituality and personal and spiritual development. But uh, more than that, we're talking about getting up off the mat or opening your eyes after a good meditation and going out into the world and making a difference and being more than a consumer. Hala, you brought up just before the break this idea of separation. And I know just in my own life, I've spent so many days feeling like an effect of what other people do to me. And it's so easy to be a character in that pity party. And sometimes I feel like a a billiard ball on a pool table crashing into these other separated billiard balls in a world of separated form. But that seems to be at the root of the problem that, in fact, we're not only connected, as in the word we talked about, yoga means union, 
But we're really all part of one thing, an emanation of one thing. The colors that come through a prism are really quite light, ultimately, from the sun. They scatter into these beautiful colors, as do individual beings, people and animals and plants. But would you talk about that a little bit, your sense of why separation, as apparent as it may seem, is really an illusion? Yeah. Well, I think that when I think about the times where I have felt most connected and most happy, there are usually times where I feel deeply connected, whether it's deeply connected to another person, to nature, to something I can't name. I think that what we all want on some level is a feeling of connection. And when our lives are built on this myth that we are these individual billiard balls, when we are sold this idea of rugged individualism, which again is a deliberate thing that we are sold, is a deliberate political act that helps to maintain supremacy culture. And I won't get too much of a tangent on that, but when we keep people separated, they can be disempowered and the powers that be can maintain their supremacy. But on a spiritual level and on a psychological level, we are social beings. We rely on the connection and attunement of other people for our survival. When you think about a little baby, a baby would not survive if it weren't being attuned to and cared for. This is not true of all animals. Some animals are born and they go off and they can take care of themselves. So there's something biologically inside of us that when we are alone, not by choice, it feels like a threat. It feels like danger. And so, of course, as adults, we do not need other people to feed us and clothe us and meet our every need in that same way. But at our essence, at our core, I believe that we can only know ourselves through knowing others and letting them know us. And, you know, for a while, I thought that that meant the only thing that mattered were deep connections, right? People who knew me, people that I could know in a deeply intimate way. But in my book, I talk about this thing that I've, I've called our connection ecosystem, that there's people that we have different connections with. My neighbors, for example, they're lovely people, but I don't sit with them. They don't know my soul, right? I don't know them well, but I will go into their house and um, water their plants when they're stuck out of town. They will come and get my mail for me. We care for each other. That's an important connection. My UPS guy, I know, I don't know him beyond his name and a wave. But when we reflect on our daily life, some of those smaller connections can help us feel like we're part of this interconnected web. We don't need every relationship to be profound. And in fact, I will say that when we do not see or we invisibilize the relationships that don't seem so central to our lives, we become part of a problem. And this got very highlighted in COVID, right? Who were our essential workers? Aside from our medical professions and our doctors and our nurses, it was the folks that kept our water on, who kept our electricity on. It was all those invisible people that contribute to our well-being, working class folks who historically are made invisible. They are not cared for. They are not made a priority. Who's made a priority? The CEO, the movie star. So when I think about connection, I think about it as an ecosystem of making the invisible visible, of valuing all of our relations 
even if they have a different purpose and seeing ourselves as an integral part of all of those connections. The title of your book is uh, Peace from Anxiety. What's the exact title? So Peace from Anxiety, Get Grounded, Build Resilience, and Stay Connected Amidst the Chaos. Peace from Anxiety. What, what do you suppose, how, how do you define anxiety or stress or fear? Um, so, you know, I always say that my book is a journey from individual well-being to collective care. I think that the root of much of our anxiety is this disconnection from each other and this disconnection from the world. So anxiety can mean a lot of things. So in the book, I talk about simple things to regulate your nervous system. For example, I might be anxious because because I have certain things going on in my body that cause me anxiety, right? Maybe I have a hormone imbalance or I have unprocessed trauma that dysregulates my nervous system. But when we stop at the individual and and much of the self-help world really has people focus on their own individuality, right? What are you going to do to heal yourself? Maybe you go to therapy. Maybe you look at your closest relationships. But I think our anxiety can also be rooted in this more global sense of disconnection, this broader sense of not feeling like we're part of something. Maybe we have a few people we feel connected to, but we're disconnected from the larger whole. And so sometimes we get peace from anxiety by serving others. I've had clients who have spent years working on their mental health, but they're so self-obsessed that they actually need to extend their care to somebody else. And that allows them to feel relief from their own anxiety. So I can't say that it's one thing for everybody. We all have a different relationship to whatever is causing our anxiety. But I do feel like there's a collective anxiety that has to do with separation, disconnection, valuing productivity over our relationships and our disconnection from the earth as well. You remind me of a... uh psychotherapist, a contemporary psychotherapist, but recently passed, uh, Roberto Assagioli. And he talks about anxiety and depression, sadness, and our longing for love as divine homesickness. Mm, I love that. Isn't that a great term? Divine homesickness, as if Incarnation tears us from the bosom of oneness and throws us down into these physical vehicles. And that, again, all of our love and longing for connection, as well as our anxiety and sadness, is rooted in this desire to go home again. Mm. I love that. And I think oftentimes people are sold the opposite. You know, sometimes we hear and the self-help realm, well, you can't, no one can ever fully love you until you love yourself, right? Right. I think that's a terrible idea. You know, sometimes we need to learn love in relationship. How do we learn love in isolation, right? Well, I think self-love is a relationship with the source, what we call divinity. But much of monotheism is about an idea of divinity is separate also. God is separate. 
he's out here, he's over there, he's outside his creation, and you can only petition him with prayer, which to me is sort of like writing a letter to Santa Claus. I don't think that's I don't think that's the way it works. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe to affirm what we already have and fail to recognize would be a better approach. Mm, yeah. You are also a somatic therapist, and I think we're walking right up to the edge of this whole idea that we carry emotional and physical trauma in our bodies, often throughout our entire lives. And then that trauma manifests in other ways, as if the brain's trying to get our attention. Why don't you talk about your understanding of somatic therapy? Yeah. Yeah. In my training and in a lot of the research, what we find is that trauma, like you said, physical, emotional, lives in the body, not in the mind, not in the higher brain, right? So when I say body, I'm talking about the lower brain centers and the nervous system. The example I like to give is how often do you feel like you're in danger? Your heart is racing, you're sweating, you're hypervigilant. Your mind might say everything's fine. There's no danger. But your body is feeling as if your imminent threat is about to happen, right? And so what happens when we've had overwhelming experiences in our life, which is a very basic definition of trauma, is anything that overwhelms our capacity to cope and respond. And it leaves us feeling helpless, hopeless, and out of control. That's a, that's a broad generalization, a broad definition of trauma. When we have experiences we can't cope with, those experiences can get stuck in our bodies. When they are not able to be metabolized, moved through, or discharged, they live in our bodies. Simple experience. Uh, there's a, my teacher, Peter Levine, in his book talks about working with a man, an Eskimo, who was attacked by an animal up in Alaska. And he was having nightmares and panic attacks, even though he never, phys- he never physically got hurt by the animal, right? He recovered, he was attacked. And when he really sat with it, what happened was because he was not able to defend himself, the impulse to defend himself, the impulse to fight back was stuck in his body. He had all this energy stuck in his body, ready to pounce at any moment. And he was living his life hypervigilant, waiting for this animal to jump out of the woods so he could defend himself. So he had to sit in the therapy and actually imagine the animal and imagining defending himself, do some of the movements, let that energy move out of his body. So unresolved trauma can trap us in the past. We're trapped in hypervigilance or shut down. And so in order to heal that trauma, we have to get back in touch with the sensations and the emotions that at the time were maybe intolerable and terrorizing. We have to safely and slowly touch into them so we can safely release them. And do you do that through movement, through guided imagery? What's your approach? All of it. So sometimes we go back and we imagine the situation and we feel it in our bodies And we tell a new story in our bodies, right? You don't want to take somebody back to something traumatic without getting them very grounded, very resourced, very supported. Otherwise, you're re-traumatizing them. So this is why I spend a lot of time making sure people are feeling grounded in the here and now, resourced in the here and now, so they can go back and retell the story in their bodies, their minds, and their hearts. They can go back and this time fight off the bear instead of be attacked by the bear. So we can, we can go back and rewire the nervous system, retell the stories that live in our bodies 
so that they are not holding us hostage. Um, Bessel van der Kolk, who's a, who's a trauma researcher out in Boston, says that trauma is a loss of imagination. We can only imagine things being as bad as they were. And when we, when we heal trauma, we're able to imagine something better and live into that. We're all living into some imagined future. And if we're holding on to trauma, that future is the same as the past. And as we heal, we can start to be living into a different future. Well, I think people would be quick to accept that physical trauma is held in the body. It may be a bit of a stretch for some to consider that emotional trauma is held in the body, but emotions are called feelings because all of our emotions are felt in the body. And when I was a young man and just, <laughs> just exploring what in those days we called the human potential movement, that was a big breakthrough for me to realize that feelings were not just something for me to think about in my head, that I could actually move my awareness into my body and find where in my body <laughs> I was feeling yeah. that feeling. Mm -hmm. And that area of my body's traumatized. It's like mm -hmm. the little child we talked about before after a bad dream. It's, it's mm -hmm. imagine how your teeth feel when the dentist starts to drill on them, you know? Absolutely. And I think that emotions, when they're happening with an intensity that's traumatic, can feel intolerable, right? So we defend against them. We disconnect from them. Um, and those get trapped in our bodies, right? We tighten. We tighten, right? We tighten or we float away. There's two different extremes, right? There's tightening and floating away. Um, and especially there's something called developmental trauma. Developmental trauma is not about an event. It's relational so if you weren't attuned to by your care, primary caretaker as a young child, if there wasn't a warm holding environment for you, that is a, that's a pretty severe trauma to not have been attuned to consistently as a child. Because that initial relationship makes a permanent imprint on us. I don't think very many people at all and I put myself at the head of the list here for most of my life, really appreciate the enormous amount of love and care that children need. And even the best of parents, the most conscious and well-intentioned parents, I don't think we fully appreciate. Let me just say there's room for us to learn much more about caring to these needs. I've had a lot of parents, for example, come to me and say, well, I don't know what's wrong with my kid. I talk to him. I talk to her. I talk and talk until I'm blue in the face. I'm paying attention. I'm loving them. And I said, but are you listening? Do you encourage them to talk? You create a space where it's safe for them to express their feelings. Because I uh, certainly I never had that. I was threatened if I expressed if I cried. Oh, my Lord, I was in even bigger trouble now, right? And you can never be angry with your parents. Yeah. You're not allowed to express your anger, right? And you don't have the vocabulary or the understanding as a kid. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I think it's the job of parents to give our kids that vocabulary. You know, it was funny. My son, my 11 year old last night said, mom, you're the best ever. And I hate you. (laughs) And, and, And he was laughing because, you know, I'm trying to give my kids this vocabulary to understand that we can love someone and we can hate them. Right. Both can be true at the same time. And, you know, I think that when we learn that we can be integrated adults that understand that we are complicated beings. And, and, and as long as we're aware of the shadow side, the I hate you part or whatever, then that part isn't going to rule us. So how'd you feel when, I mean, even though you taught him to say that and gave him the, the permission or the latitude to be so direct, didn't your heart soar when he said you're the best and didn't it sink or drop like a rock when he said, and I hate you? <laughs> well, you know, what was funny was he was upset because I was telling him he had to get up early for his soccer tournament this morning. So he was really frustrated about that. And I think he was sort of making fun of himself for being mad at me because I was just delivering the news of the team that he loves and wants to be on. And so it actually in that moment, the statement also made my, both statements made my heart sore because I felt like he was making fun of himself, understanding that I was holding a projection in the moment, to, which to me felt like an emotional intelligence yes, he, on his part. So he's self-aware enough that he's in on the, the, the deal. Yeah. He, he knows what he's saying. And wow, he's how old? 11. Well, kudos to you and your husband for allowing your children, encouraging them, cultivating that level of, of self-awareness. It's, it's a tangent I'm tempted to get into, but that would be a, a whole different topic for another show, the idea of parenting and, and how we can be better parents. Again, uh, a lot of us who are therapists or counselors of one sort or another see the fallout from this years and years later where children have made false assumptions about themselves. We're told we're bad, for example, and it's not explained that I love you, but this behavior is bad. So the kid not being able to discern the difference goes to their room thinking, I am bad. And then we forget that we made that false assumption, and yet, in our lives, it gets triggered by something that happened yesterday or the day before. And our reaction seems excessive and inappropriate. And again, we don't even realize that it's triggering this old trauma that we've carried in our body this whole time. Exactly. Exactly. So I think this is where all these different therapies come together. Mm -hmm. And, uh, How do you feel about the phrase, the only way out is through? 100% agree with it. 100%. Yeah. So we we do have to face it. We have to face it. You know, I have a quick story. I know our time is limited. Do I have time for a quick story? Of course. Yeah, sure. So giving birth to my second son, Marley, the 11-year-old, there was a point, you know, I was lucky enough to have both my babies at home and very, you know, no complications, unmedicated births. So but the second one was bigger than the first. And there was a point in the pushing. I thought, I didn't think I could do it. It was intolerable, the pain. So I started to then imagine holding him. I I was trying to get away from it. I was just imagine holding him. And I literally felt the baby go back up the birth canal. 
every time I tried to get away from the discomfort to imagine the other side, to get around it, baby would go back in. And my midwife caught it. She said, what are you doing? <laughs> she said, you have to go here. And I thought, oh, I have to go towards the, the ring of fire. And I went there and I pushed and the baby was born. But that's, you know, that was my literal experience. And I thought even the moment, oh my God, this is what I teach. I can't escape. I can't go around it. I have to go through. Well, it's such a metaphor for life. One of my greatest epiphanies in meditation, and this has been many, many years now, was I heard clear as a bell a voice say, it even used my first name and said, Michael, the best parts of you are hidden where you're most afraid to look. And it was only later that I read Carl Jung said the same thing. Uh, Joseph Campbell said the uh, in talking about the hero's journey and the monomyth that's beneath all fable and, and great story is uh, the treasure is always hidden in the cave you least wish to enter. So talk about uh, facing it, facing it, embracing it, walking right down through the scariest, darkest passage, and then be the light, be the embodiment of the light that illumines your path as you do that. I think that's the secret. And then, like the shampoo bottle, lather, rinse, repeat, right? (laughs) Okay. Um, Tell us how folks can uh, learn more about you, your book and your uh, social activist organization. Do you have a website, I'm sure? I do. My website is my name, halakouri.com, H-A-L-A-K-H-O-U-R-I. And you can find everything there, my book, classes, workshops. I have a membership community where we practice yoga together every month. Um, All that is on my website. And do you see private clients for the somatic therapy? I am not currently working with private clients because I'm working with organizations right now. You're teaching other therapists to training? Yeah, I work with school teachers. Um, I train yoga teachers and therapists and educators. Wonderful. Hala, thanks so much. I know you're a busy woman, and I appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. And uh, thank you for your good work in the world and for getting people off the map and into the world. Thank you so much. It was a treat getting to speak with you, Michael. Stay with us. We'll be right back. This is the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on KPFK. The Car Show has aired on KPFK since 1973. And perhaps you have a car that's been sitting in your driveway since 1973 or 1993. Or maybe you're still driving it, but it's time to say goodbye. Get rid of that thing and help KPFK at the same time. Your donation of your old car gets it out of your life and helps KPFK as a tax-deductible donation. And not just cars. Trucks, boats, and motorcycles are also welcome. It's easy. Just call 877-KPFK-AUTO and we'll handle all the details. Let your old car help KPFK. The Ageless Wisdom with Michael Benner. Thanks for staying with us. I want to thank Hala Curry again for a great show about yoga. And, you know, in reflecting on what we were just talking about, I really liked the comment about the illusion of separation. That uh, one of the phenomena of the physical material world is we see things as separated forms. If we go back to middle school and science class and what we learned about the atomic structure of things, 
We know that that which appears solid is actually a cloud of tiny particles, mostly empty space. Even something like lead or titanium is in fact no denser than a snowstorm. So we live in a world that appears to be filled with a bunch of separated forms, human bodies, uh, coffee cups, automobiles, and airplanes, right? And everything is a separate object by all appearances, but in fact is part of a unified field of energy, don't you see? So as consciousness, we're all part of one thing. Sure, we have separate bodies, but our awareness, our mind is connected. Each of us in emanation of some majestic, wondrous, incomprehensible, (laughs) ineffable source, whatever that may be. We often call it divinity, the absolute. Well, here's my point. When it comes to the KPFK fund drive every couple of months, I think that's a great message to remind us that we're not separate and we're not alone unless you choose to be. If that's your consciousness, if that's your awareness, that you're a lonely person in a lonely world, you're alienated, separated, and isolated, well, that's the reality you create for yourself. But if you acknowledge that we're part of a a common effort to grow, to emerge, to evolve, and to help others do the same, then you can see the importance of acknowledging that you're part of everything, of all things, including KPFK. That's not a stretch, is it? We are a listener-supported, non-commercial radio station. Have been since 1959. And somehow we keep the lights on. We've avoided becoming a commercial station. We refuse corporate underwriting. We don't even get CPB money, Corporation for Public Broadcasting, comes from the federal government. We don't get that either. We are like 98% dependent upon your contributions. So this is my appeal to acknowledge and to accept and to welcome in the understanding that you're part of one thing and we need your support. Everyone benefits, including you. You're part of the greater good right? You benefit. You're listening to this radio station now. You just enjoyed this interview on the Ageless Wisdom Show. And there are many other programs on KPFK that you really like. So won't you give us a call or better yet, go to the website. The phone room is at 818-985-5735. We've had to outsource it. So be patient with those people. They're, They're answering phones for a lot of different people. 818-985-5735 and say, I want to make a donation to KPFK in Los Angeles. Or just go right to the website, take your browser to kpfk.org slash donate. Or just kpfk.org and poke around. You'll see support KPFK on the banner. You go there, I, I suggest you choose Sustainer Circle and make a pledge of 20 or $25 a month. 
If that's too much, $15 a month. You won't even miss it. Come on, you know you won't even miss it. And yet for us, it's an essential contribution. It's tax deductible, you know that. There's some nice premiums and thank you gifts, especially if you enhance that donation a little bit. But you're not buying premiums. You're supporting progressive free speech radio for Los Angeles, for the county, the state, the nation, indeed, the world. We stream live at kpfk.org, and we podcast most of our programs as well. So help us out, kpfk.org, and look for Sustainer Circle, and then choose an appropriate amount, $15, $20, $25 a month or more if you're in good shape. Because we know there's lots of people who are still unemployed after COVID, or maybe you're a student or a senior, you could contribute as little as $25 a year. That'll make you a voting member, or $5 a month. But today I'm appealing to you, if you have an income, if you're happy and healthy and love KPFK, how about 20 or $25 a month? It'll show up right there on your bank statement, whether you get it in the mail or or online, it'll be right there. Show it to your tax guy at the end of the year. And thank you for supporting what supports you. Community Radio, KPFK in Los Angeles. Hey, I want to thank my guest, Hala Curia, again for being with us. I want to thank my producer, Mark Brisky. I want to remind you that this program streams on demand at theagelesswisdom.com. More about me at michaelbenner.com. And as always, be gentle, love life, and take care of each other. From Los Angeles, this is Michael Benner on KPFK. KPFK.